The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Welcome, my name is John. For those of you uh, who uh, might be new or not uh, know me, I want to get to know you. If that's the case, so please come up and say hi afterwards if we haven't met. Uh, if you've been hanging out in the back for a couple of weeks, that's you. Uh, then you need to come up and say hi because um, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, we're finishing up this whole series uh, called Core, and and we'll we'll have an opportunity to um, wrap things up tonight a little bit as we as we finish up on it. As we uh, finish up looking at what does it look what is worship really about? We're trying to examine uh, what worship what really is be kind of behind uh, worship and see if there's something that uh, we can learn. Uh, those of you. Who know me know that I have a couple little boys, uh, Noah, who's six, and Caleb, who's three and a half. They are hilarious, uh, and they're a good time. They, um, they keep me humble all the time. Uh, Tuesdays, though, are my day when I get to take Caleb in uh, to preschool, and it's usually a fun time. We get to connect a little bit and, uh, as we're driving in, and, and he's hilarious because he just uh, he says everything boldly, uh, even if it makes no logical sense. He just says it boldly. That's just the way it is. And I, and you gotta love that. I love that about him. So sometimes conversations can be a little funny. But this morning was interesting because it actually kind of ties into what we're talking about tonight. He, we're on the way in. I turn on the music and sometimes, you know, when they're at home, um, his mom, uh, they, they turn on classical or jazz or something like that. And, and it's, it's kind of funny that our boys love classical, um, in many ways. And I think that's awesome. Uh, even if I don't listen to it. So, but I love it that they do. But anyway, so I turn on the and I go, hey, Caleb, what do you want to listen to as we drive into school this morning? You want to listen to jazz? Is that your favorite? He's like, nah, I don't, nah, I don't know. Really? Well, what, well, okay, well, what do you want to listen to? What's your favorite music? He goes, loud music. <laughs> and I thought, you're my son. And I love you. No, loud music. And I was like, okay, well, well, what do you mean? Like loud rock star music? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Well, Okay, okay, all right, I'm with that. I can understand. So wh- why is that? Is it, is it because, it's probably because we dance, right? Dance parties, and we have some killer dance parties in our house. Uh, David, who's joining me, uh, can testify to that a little later. Uh, his, uh, we've corrupted his daughter already. Anyways, getting ahead of myself. Uh, but so I just thought, you know, it's interesting. I was like, so, so loud music, huh? He's like, yeah, you need to believe in loud music in your heart. <laughs> You know, I don't know what to do with that, right? On one hand, I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's going to, you know, join the family business. He's already, you know, kind of preaching it a little bit. On the other hand, his theology is a little dodgy. So I said, what? What? No, yeah, you got to believe in loud rock star music in your heart. Really? Fascinating. Okay. So, so Caleb, why don't you, you know, tell me why? He goes, well, because it makes you happy. Right? And I think, oh, that's kind of true. I mean, you know, you get your booty shaking a little bit. There's some joy in that. And yet there's some, you know, I didn't, wasn't going to get into the, the kind of the larger questions of, of worship and music and what makes you happy and what makes you, does, you know, doesn't make you happy. Actually, I tried, but it just it was tanking. But anyways, but what I love about that, though, is that so often when we talk about worship, and some, that, for some of you, you might be coming in here and just feel like worship discussions feel like they go nowhere. Uh, you might feel like some of you who've grown up in churches, you've grown up in, in places where, where churches fought over worship. You've been in places where you feel like worship has the expectation that somehow we would connect into something bigger. 
That somehow it would be meaningful, that somehow it would be relevant, that somehow it would make a difference in your life, and yet it doesn't seem to. In fact, what often might seem to happen, at least I can say this in my own life, is that sometimes what we do is we get in conversations where we're arguing about what kind of music to accept into my heart. Is it loud rock star music? Because, man, that's what's alive. Or maybe it's organ music. Or maybe it's that you need to wear robes, or maybe it's that you don't need to wear robes, or, or, or you know, or maybe it's that you pray prayers that are written down or, or come out of books, or, or maybe it's that you just kind of babble for on and on and on, and that seems like that's really good prayer. And so, but so often when we talk about worship, it just we get stuck up at this level that feels like it's just missing something. It's missing something that connects us to something larger than ourselves. Well, that's what this series has been about, is that we've been trying to figure out how do we, how do we have a conversation that begins to take in kind of the, kind of the wider range of what worship or Christian practice even could be about. How can we sort of maybe get, get below sort of the, the, kind of the dead end circles that we get in? How can we begin to understand how to really grow in this? So one of the things that I threw out earlier on is that when we think about growth or when we think about, uh, engaging in something larger than ourselves, a lot of times, what we do need to recognize, there's a couple factors, there's lots of factors. There's our will. You know, there's new input. You know, we have a new plan, a new community, a new worship service. You know what? Uh, this doesn't seem, I don't seem to be growing. I don't seem to be connecting. I don't seem to be uh, having any sense of, of connection with God or other people, or I'm not growing in my faith. So what I just need is I need, I'm in an organ service. Maybe what I need to do is get into a guitar service, and I'll try that. Or maybe we go, you know what? That's just shallow Guitars are shallow. Everybody who plays a guitar is shallow. I mean, could be true. Anyways, what I need to do is I need to get some history and tradition. So I'm going to go get me some organ music, right? We think, oh, that's going to happen, but it never really does. Well, what happens is these are easy to talk about, and they're important. But often what we don't get at is the, the motivation or the why. And the motivation of the why is difficult. It's difficult to talk about because um, there's not always easy answers. There's not immediate to-dos that come out of it. Um, sometimes it brings us into places of tension where it's not this or that, but it's sort of somehow together, and that, that's difficult. It brings us into vulnerable places oftentimes. We don't want to talk about that. It, what it does often is it brings us into issues of our own identity. We've got to talk about that. We have to talk about the whys every now and then, though, at least every now and then, because what happens is this has a huge um, influence on whether we engage in what I call the X factor. And the X factor is that thing outside of our control. It's that thing that makes us feel like we're connecting to something important or we're connecting into something uh, really meaningful. And, and it, this isn't just uh, in faith. This isn't just relationships, right? This is... Totally outside of our control. We don't want someone, we don't want to date someone, we don't want to marry someone who we feel like has to love us. That we can totally control it and now they have to, we want them to choose to love us. Somehow that's totally outside of our control. Our motivation can have a a big difference on whether we start facing towards this or whether we get cut off. Whether we engage or whether we get cut off. So as we've looked through this, we've been looking through kind of some basic categories that help guide worship and really honestly a lot of Christian practice. Practices that help us somehow get at something that we're all longing for. But what's the why? Well, the why that we, that I shared at the beginning is a, a way to begin to think about this is that worship isn't, it's not about these things, you know, certain practices or th- certain things we do individually, but it's, they're all judged according to what they're ultimately trying to accomplish and what, 
I believe worship is ultimately trying to accomplish is trying to restore an identity that was marred at the fall. An identity in which God blessed us, God created us, God called us good, God called us very good, God set us up for human flourishing, and yet in that moment we chose life that was isolated to ourselves. We chose life in which we took what was good, what was beautiful, we took what was useful, and we said, I will take the full responsibility on myself. I don't need you. And when we do that, our identity is marred. Somehow we enter into this place where we cannot bear the responsibility fully alone. Not because we're not intelligent people, because we're not the creator. We can't know all things through all time. We're designed for trusting relationship. Well, if we're, if we're to restore this core, and the core of who we are will drive our actions, whether, regardless of what we think is right or what we want to do is right or what we think we should do, what is we believe about our core is going to ultimately motivate us and drive our actions. So we talked about, if we're going to restore our core, our core is, it's not about singing songs. That doesn't somehow restore our core. That doesn't somehow bring us into a place where we engage with the living God and then suddenly He does a transforming work in our life. But that we need to think about, there's, our core is bigger than that. It's multifaceted. And so it includes something about being gathered restores us. Something about being honest, that, that there's a sense around confession and assurance that, that isn't about feeling bad, it's about feeling free. It's about just being honest about who we are, about being illuminated, about being secure, especially in an environment where we, we have more opportunity than ever before, but we are less secure in our relationships than ever before. Is this person going to leave me? I don't know that just because I'm married doesn't mean they're going to stick with me. Is this person going to turn on me? Is my boss going to throw me out? Man, we live in this environment. You think about work even. That we, it used to be that if you did a good job, man, you, you were in for 30 years, pension done, secure. Now, if, even if you're doing a good job, they could get, you could get thrown out tomorrow. We live in a place of incredible insecurity. When is suddenly, when suddenly am I going to be told you're not good enough? Out. And yet what we hear in worship, somehow we, were, we hear this word of security and then uh, tonight the sense of scent. That somehow there is something that and often actually gets lost. When we think about worship, we often don't connect it with, a, with sending. Well, that's what I want to talk about tonight. I'm going to have David's going to help me in, and I'm hoping to open it up a little bit for us to talk uh, as well about this or about the series. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, would you open up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, and you can read along with me. I'm going to be hanging out in chapter 4 and 5. And In fact, I would encourage you, if you want to jot it down, uh, to go back and to, and to uh, read chapters um, 3, especially um, 3, uh, 15, uh, on all the way through 5. It would be a, a great uh, devotion and reading for you. But tonight, uh, we're just going to read this passage. So uh, you can follow along with me as I read. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul talking to the, to the church uh, in Corinth, a church that uh, should give us all hope because it was a total disaster early on. Okay, For Christ's love compels us, Paul says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view 
Though we, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling himself, oh, the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for um, Paul's letters. Uh, thank you for churches uh, early on that were um, just a mess so that we don't feel like um, we don't get it. Uh, Lord, but you have been working um, with messes for a long time. Lord, we, we want to hear what, uh, this, uh, what this letter written to a, a church a long time ago has to say to us. It was inspired by your spirit uh, many uh, uh, thousands of years ago, and uh, we believe that spirit is at work tonight. So, Lord, let us hear um, what it is that you have for us um, tonight. Amen. Well, this issue of sending is a is an interesting one. It is, you know, so central to who we are, isn't it? Because it begins to talk about purpose, and and if we talk about what is it to be human, it, it's to be people who have purpose or significance. Now, you don't have to aspire to anything great, to anything that has headlines, to a, a large title. We all long to live with a sense of purpose and significance, to, to, to make a difference in the world, to, to be someone that, that, that people look to and go, man, I'm glad they're here. They make things better. That's who, that's who we are. And yet in the false, a lot of that was marred. That, that significance takes a weird twist, and we see this happen all the time, that significance sometimes takes a twist when in, in, instead of us longing to be significant, we end up being the villain. We end up being the, the person who, who gained, amassed perhaps power for themselves and yet ends up being the person that everybody despises. It, purpose gets marred. We, we end up searching after purpose and then later on, you know, it's the stereotype of, uh, of a midlife crisis because we realize the thing that we poured ourselves into has left us bankrupt. Many of us have seen that and those who have gone before us, perhaps some of our bosses, some of our supervisors. Some of us have seen that in some of our parents where we go, whatever they did, I don't want to do that because that left them fundamentally bankrupt. Well, purpose has always been a sense of what something that God has cared about from the very beginning and, and part of his whole redemptive mission in the world and in restoring the world to, to what he intended it for has always included our being a part of that, playing a key role in the purpose of that. Right from the very beginning, in, in Genesis, we see that Abraham was called, specially, and he was blessed. But he was never blessed for himself. He was blessed that he would be a blessing to the nations. Before he even knew what that meant. Before he even had a kid. I mean, it, and this is blowing his mind. You know, he doesn't even know what it's, this means. Well, later on, Israel is stuck in Egypt and, and they're slaves and God rescues them out of Egypt. 
And he says, I'm going to form you into a nation. I mean, if you're going to form anybody into a nation, one that begins to, to declare your glory or your fame in the world or, or, or begins to represent you in, in, in some way, the last thing you'd want to do is a bunch of slaves out of Egypt. I mean, Israel was not the people you would want to choose. And yet he, he that seems like he's always doing that. And, and yet he says, look, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my law. In other words, I'm going to give you my heart. We talked about that in, in illumination. We got to get away from the law being a bad thing necessarily. He said, I'm going to give you the law because I want you to have my heart, my mind. But I want this not just for you. This isn't about you getting rich. This is about you being a blessing to the nations. And now here Paul says, look, now that you've been called to Christ, you're, you're called not just to, just to sit there and be smug about it. You're, you're called to something. You're called to a, a purpose, a mission. You're called to be an ambassador, a minister of reconciliation. Well, this is not a, so this is not a new message. It's not anything that's just come out of the New Testament. It, it is an old message. It has been there from the very beginning, but it has also always been incredibly hard. If you look through the history of the church, we have failed all uh, time and time again. In fact, honestly, I've messed this up time and time again. It's incredibly difficult, mostly because it has, to, it has a lot to do with how much do we actually live in a trusting relationship with God. And we don't like to do that. It's hard. The problem with that, you know, the problem is that sometimes we hear that and we get motivated by it. And so some of you, I, I know you, you've heard about the sense of mission or call or being, a, or being an ambassador. And what you think is, this sounds like another thing on top of what I'm already doing. This sounds like activity that's exhausting. Perhaps some of you have been part of churches that are like that. You just think, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. Some of us, maybe, maybe in response to that, we, we've been a part of places and we go, maybe it doesn't even register because we just go, it's just kind of an apathy, kind of a passive apathy that, oh, God, you know, God will do, do that and I don't want to force anybody into anything and I don't want to bug anybody and, and so, and so we just kind of, we kind of let that, we sort of let that go. The problem is both of these, both of these exclude us from the power of God in our lives. Exclude you from knowing the living God. If you cut this out, you cut this out. There is something about your core identity that will be atrophied. So I want to make a couple uh, observations about what maybe this might mean because I'm not gonna, we're not gonna spell it out because this needs to be as broad as, as, uh, can possibly be. So a couple of observations. The first is we think, what does it mean to be an ambassador? What does it mean to, to have the ministry of reconciliation. The first one is this. Ministers of reconciliation are emotionally honest. What I love about Paul is that you see throughout his, his letters that he is incredibly honest. So this is uh, verse 7 in chapter uh, 4. This is why I'd like you to, to read all these together. He's talking about this ministry and he's leading up to this ministry of reconciliation. And yet what he's talking about is he says, look, his own experience. We have this treasure, the gospel, the, the, the power of God, the, the story that God is, is reached out and is calling people into relationship with him. He is transforming people regardless of who you are. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. The context on this that you need to hear is that Paul is talking to a church that has been captured 
by teachers who have come in after him who are fundamentally about power, success. They're slick. They're polished. They sound great. They look great. And Paul, frankly, doesn't look very good. In fact, he probably may not, might not be that great a speaker. There's, there's a sense where, you know, these guys just blow Paul out of the water. They are way more interesting to listen to. And here's the thing. Paul's not interested or Paul's not worried about, uh, you know, kind of protecting his turf like he can't share. In fact, there's lots of opportunities where Paul goes, yeah, I'm more than willing to share. That's not really it. The issue is what we struggled with and we were trying to unpack in Romans in the fall. The issue is that this gospel, it sounds good. This message sounds good, but it is a gospel that is disconnected from the power of God because it disconnects people from trusting relationship in Jesus Christ. And Paul's adamant about it. He will have absolutely none of it because you cannot live the Christian life with any sense of success, any sense of power, any sense of transformation in your own life if you do not live it. In, under the mercy of God. And he says, look, we have, we gotta fix that. And, and so he begins to talk about his own experience. And the experience of the super apostle, the, the one that should be better than everyone is this. He goes, we're hard pressed. It, it's hard. We're perplexed. I don't, I, I don't know what's going on. I've, I, uh, I've been persecuted. I've been struck down. One commentator thought struck down could be a way for him to talk about, uh, feeling depressed in language before, um, uh, we were able to talk about depression. We have to be emotionally honest. One of the things this does is help us get out of the, the trap that sometimes we get into of thinking that we have to go out and save the world, that we have sort of every... It's our job to fix everybody. That's not what being an ambassador is about. An ambassador, oftentimes, are those who realize that... That to reset an identity, to truly do it, to, to truly grow in strength, to, to truly have move with a sense of purpose might mean that I don't experience instant, quick, easy feelings of power and success. In fact, it might even be antithetical. It might even be opposite. And here's why. Two reasons. First is that it's just true to who we are. And who we are is that we are a creation. We're not the creator. The world does not spin around us. We do not define reality. We don't get to dictate terms on how we, on how we connect with other people. So often we get into the trap of the world kind of comes around us. We wouldn't really say that out loud, but we, that's how, what we want to think. The world does not revolve around us. We're just a, a, a creature. And here's where we begin to get in this awkward place that we don't like to talk about in motivation here. We got to sit with the tension. Whereas David would say in the Psalms, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're money, right? Some of us get that a little better than we should. But anyways, we're money. We're amazing. We're beautiful. We're made on purpose. And we are frail. We're weak. We're full of doubt. We don't get it. We could get hurt tomorrow and knocked out. There's this sense of of our total frailty and, and getting overwhelmed and our inability to follow through on the very things we want. And, and... We're God's amazing creation at the same time. It's this awkward tension that we have to sit in. And sometimes what it means is that life is just going to be difficult. We have to reset our scorecard because so often our scorecard is, if God's in this, it's easy. It's quick. I feel really good about it. And yet so often it's actually the exact opposite. 
Second reason is this. We have to engage with who we really are, and we really don't want to live in that place of vulnerability. We we would rather live in a place um, where we feel strong and where we kind of dominate the situation. We all want that. You know, that disconnects us so often from the things that we want so bad. The second reason is this, is that the message that we bring is nothing that we possess. It's not ours. We don't control it. We can't manipulate it. It's not ours. The message is this, that you can connect with God. I don't get to do anything about it. In fact, God is at work in and around me, but I don't necessarily get to feel it or, or, or control it. So here's the thing. As we sit and think about what does it mean to be an ambassador, we need to think about what does it mean to be people who can move beyond the immediate. See, Paul will talk about growing in strength, but not necessarily feeling that. He talks about, I want to see a power in your life in which you endure the unendurable, in which you join the impossible. I mean, think about this. Any story, I just watched Secretariat. Right? Who's seen Secretariat? Okay, it's it's the story of um, one of the most famous racehorses, uh, won the Triple Crown, um, uh, blew the next horse out of the water. We love inspirational stories. We love Disney, especially loves inspirational stories, right? They got the formula down, right? They love it's a great story. But any great story in which people uh, join something bigger than themselves that accomplish the impossible is always a story of struggle. It's always a story of people enduring things that would wipe most people out. And yet, oftentimes, when it comes to our own personal growth, we think it should be totally different. Why would we think it has to be any different? We need to reset our scorecards so that we make room in our own life and in the lives of other people for the full range of emotional experience. It's not about being sad and depressed, but it's about saying it's okay if it's hard. Because this message that we bring is a message that will be incredibly threatening to some. It's a message that sometimes is going to call us to look into the dark places of our own soul that we do not want to look, and it is frightening. Sometimes it'll lead us into places in which we're going to, we're going to hit conflict. One of the things that I love is, um, as I've sat with some of you, um, some of the leaders, some of the folks um, in the worship team, some of the folks who are uh, leading community groups, I'm amazed by some of the people who have walked into places in which it is really difficult. I wish that when I ask you to volunteer, it's great and it's fun and you feel like you're a champion and you feel like a million bucks all the time and you feel like you're instantly growing. And yet here's the problem. That's not how you grow. How you grow is by going into places that are often difficult and by beginning to witness to God's power in the midst of those places. And what I see through you is real growth. The kind of growth in which people are beginning to, to grow in a sense of character to where they don't get blown over when things get challenging and tough. Some of you guys have leaned into difficult, difficult situations. And I love that. Because you're not afraid uh, uh, of life getting difficult. In fact, you're leaning in big, and because of that, God, you feel like, I know some of you feel like you're just getting pushed around. Some of you at times will feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, but that is the very place where I see God at work in your life again and again. And I know that's true because I get to see it, but it's also true in my own life. I can stand up here 
as a pastor with an MDiv, with education, and yet I always feel vulnerable. And yet I've come to begin to be a little more comfortable with that because I know that's, that's often the place where God does his best work. It's also the place that I trust in. For some of you, because there's some of you that I long for you to grow in places of your core identity, and yet you want to keep up here, and I cannot do anything for you. I am helpless. And what I want you to do is to stop running from new thing to new thing, to stop exerting your will in the same tired routine that never works. I want you to look into the darkness and the void, and I want you to see that God is there instead of running from it. All of us probably have that experience. So we come alongside friends and we think, I wish they would be reconciled to God and know that God does not hate them. And yet we stand vulnerable, broken, perplexed, crying out in the middle of the night. And yet that's usually where God works in spite of us. The second thing is that ambassadors are hopeful visionaries. What I mean by this, there's a number of passages in 3, 4, and 5 in which Paul says something similar to what he says in 14, which he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Throughout Scripture, some of you will notice there's this funny phrase, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. What it does is it names the experience that we've all had somehow of not seeing what is right in front of us. Okay, this happens all the time, right? This is what makes great emotional comedies, okay? I've also had to watch Valentine's Day, so I feel like Shannon actually owes me a few on this one. Okay, Valentine's Day, it's horrible. It's like Ashton Kutcher and, and um, uh, tons of other people. Anyways, it, it's just, but right, the whole thing is that, you know, everyone's trying to get the love of somebody, and then at the end of the day, they realize, oh, my best friend's actually the best person for me, you know? It's so, you know what it is, but it's like finally their eyes are opened, Right? And everybody around them is going, yeah, you're putting a ring on her finger, but she really doesn't love you. You know, and you have to go through all this, but suddenly their eyes are open. Wait, wait, wait. This person who has been, I've known forever, who's my best friend, is actually the very best person for me. We have to have eyes somehow to actually be able to see what is going on. Okay, think about what an ambassador is. An ambassador is somebody who lives in a different land than their own on purpose. Um, but if they're going to do their job, they have to have a vision that goes beyond what is immediately in front of them. An ambassador cannot lose sight of the land that they came from. They cannot lose sight of the values of the government that they represent. They cannot uh, lose sight of the priorities and the interests of that kingdom or government. They're strangers, and so are we. And the challenge for us, especially in America, because we like to call ourselves a Christian nation often, is to remember that we who follow Jesus are strangers in our own land. And yet we are those who are called to live with a purpose. Those who are called to be present in the places where God has placed you. And God has sovereignly placed you. And what I mean by sovereignly is by His His all-knowing, all-powerful sense. He sovereignly placed you in the exact right place where he wants you to live with a hopeful vision that transcends your immediate circumstances and transcends the values of those around you. You cannot live with arrogance with this, but you also have to live with hopeful vision. 
I'm going to save a story for later on that. I want to skip real quick to what reconciliation means um, and then invite David up. Because reconciliation is a, is a funny word. It's used in the church um, quite a bit. But here's a, just a dictionary definition. Okay? To cause a person to accept or be resigned to something not desired. That's not what we're talking about. All right? Cross off number one. Except that I wonder if some of you think that that's what church is actually all about. All right? Number two. A little better. To win over uh, to friendliness. To reconcile two people who are hostile. And number three, to, to compose or to settle a quarrel. Number four, to bring into agreement or harmony, to make compatible or consistent. So let's go um, real quick to the message. A couple passages that we've looked at before. Colossians 1, uh, which uh, is really the guiding passage for convergence. And now um, looking back at our passage here. Paul in Colossians 1, under, with Eugene Peterson's translation, he says this, look, I'm going to give you the big picture in Colossians 1 that God is, is reconciling you to himself. He's at work in through your life. But guess what? God's, God's work on the cross in Jesus Christ is about reconciling all of the created order, all its institutions, all its powers, the whole created order. It's not just about you and your own personal relationship with Jesus. It is about your family. It is about your city. It is about... Uh, your company, it is about your church, your community, it is about everything. And he's calling you to participate in that. That he would say it this way, and this is why I like it. He said that, that not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fit and fix, or fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that is poured out down from the cross. Colossians 1. So when we come back to 2 Corinthians 5, we read this, that we are Christ's representatives. That God used us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things uh, right between them. God has called us into this amazing work. Whatever we do, not on top, but it's like a grid that goes over everything. It's not something that we add. It's something that infects everything we do. We are Christ's ambassadors, calling people back to say, do not live isolated from God, but come back and experience who you were created to be. Not on your own, not isolated, but a trusted relationship with the Creator. I want to invite David Hallgren uh, to come up. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you welcome him? Come on now. And the reason I've asked David uh, to come here tonight... Thank you for that welcome. But yeah. I wasn't bad. It's, you know, pretty good. Sorry, as soon as David gets up here, I just want to start talking smack, so I'm going to restrain myself. Uh, David is a good friend of mine, but more importantly, he's somebody that I've learned a ton from. This whole idea of engaging uh, worship was not my idea. It was um, because I was sitting in a bunch of conversations of people that I, I totally respect, David, one of them, in which he was calling us back to re-engaging worship in a fresh and new way. And, and, and there are some times where I just I didn't quite get it, so I kept asking questions. And so I partly did this series. I hope you liked it, but I liked it, mostly for me, because I wanted to figure out, how, I need to think about this again. I've been around forever, but I need to think about this again. One of the things that, that um, why I want David to come and share is for, uh, for us to be able to answer some of your questions here in a minute together. But also, David, let's start with this one. You, you do children and family ministries, um, you know, you are sort of looking over my kids, which I appreciate. Um, but would you tell these kids, why is it that you, you, I sit in meetings all the time and you're talking about worship and the importance of worship. You just, you just called them kids? 
These kids? My kids. You're, you're my kids too, right? Are we good? Okay, just joking. All right. You're, you, you're ministering to kids. So I go, so why don't you, you should just talk about Sunday school. Why do you keep talking about worship? Why is worship something that's important as you think about um, building up kids? Why don't you just get better flannel graphs, you know, or storyboards or something? I like to, never mind. Anyways, why do you talk about worship? Why is worship important? That's a great question. Um, here's why. I have to start by telling a story. Um, I'm a dad, too. I have two beautiful daughters. They're beautiful. I love the heck out of them. Uh, Anna is four, and Josephine is seven weeks. Um, I know. <laughs> um, and... I'm also a pastor to children, which makes me a perfect father. Um, and, you know, John, talk, John talked a little bit earlier about, about brokenness, really, and the church being a place that brokenness has to be there. The humility that we gain, the, the identity that we have as broken is where Christ meets us. Uh, so here's a story of my brokenness. I'll be vulnerable tonight. Uh, we put Anna to bed. Josephine's asleep. We have that, like, 45 minutes of the day to just take a deep breath and watch TV. It's awesome. It's our time, my wife and I, Kristen. And uh, we sit down, and all of a sudden, I see a head poke out down the stairs. It's Anna. We put her to bed. She's breaking the rules. She's coming downstairs. So I'm like, hey, Anna, what's up? Aren't you supposed to be in bed? Come on. <laughs> She's like, well, I just want to see what you and mom are doing. I'm like, well, you've seen it. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> She's like, oh, dad. Uh. So we have a little reasoning discussion. I'm the, reas- the one who reasons. My wife's the one who gets on the case. And, you know, so we get Anna back. and Or we don't get her back yet, but I say, Anna... Get up the stairs and go to bed. Now, Anna knows when Dad's the one who's laying down the law, it's go time. Because Mom is fiery. I'm more like long fuse, big bomb. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's the end of the day, and I'm like, Anna, get up the stairs and go to bed. She looks at me, and she... She's fiery like her mom. She just she smacks her leg and she goes, These damn stairs. <laughs> four, four years old. You got to love that. Hi, elders. <laughs> Worship elders. This is awesome. <laughs> this is an example of brokenness. And brokenness is something I'll never be able to hide from my daughter. From the time she met me, she began to learn that her father is a broken person. But she also gets to learn from the person who has as much influence in her life as a human being can, that in my brokenness, I am receiving the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And that is as, that defines me much more than the power of brokenness in me. And that power is what marks me. That is the power that says, "You, I met you in this state and I have taken you from A to B. You were broken and now you are whole. And that is the power of God's love 
known to us through Jesus Christ. That's the mark that we bear as beloved children of God. Now, John asks, why is worship important to me? Because worship is the place that renews that, that reminds us. God didn't say, come into a dark room and sit by yourself to commune with me. There, there are times when that is powerful in our lives. Times when we sit in the Word, times when we, when we uh, pray. That's a powerful part of our life. But God didn't demand that of us. That's a natural expression of most of our personalities. What God did demand of us is, in a rhythmic pattern, gather together and tell the stories of my faithfulness, God's faithfulness, and rejoice that I am with you. Jesus reiterated that and said, wherever two or more of you are gathered, I am with you. That is worship. And it's corporate and it's together. For some reason, God said, don't do that alone. Come together and elevate and remind yourselves of this power that's at work in this world made known to you through Jesus Christ. That power is the thing that changes us and renews us from broken to whole. Now, for Anna to know that, she has to see that happen. For any of the kids in this church, we can talk ad nauseum about that. But unless they see that happening around them, they will never understand. They Cognitively, they will never be able to connect the words that we say if they don't have vision of the actions that we live. So the fact that in this church and churches around our, our city and our, in the world, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people gather in the name of the Lord. That is what forms our kids to know that power is because they see the people around them. People like me in Anna's life. She sees me come and we all stand on the flattest, most equal ground that we can. Reconciliation has a lot of, uh, connotation in our culture. And one connotation it has is a mutual worth. When we come before the Lord, we have a mutual worth. When I come into our sanctuary and I worship God, and my daughter sits next to me, four years old, and now my seven-week daughter beside her, and my wife, all of the social connotations of worth are, are seen there. Racial difference, gender difference, age difference, experience difference, education difference. All of the social differences are experienced. Yet we come into that place of worship, and it's the flattest ground you can imagine. Because we are all before God. We are at the feet of Jesus. And that is a place where mutual worth is identified and given to us, that identity of child of God, that is a deep and powerful thing. That unless our kids see that happening in our lives, unless our kids see that happening in your lives, in the lives of the different faces, to know, oh, if all of these different people are experiencing this and are witnessing to it being true. In our culture, in Seattle, in 2000. 11, bright, intelligent, engaging people are saying, I believe in this. 
Our faith's kooky. There's some kooky things about it. We believe in some weird stuff. Weird births, death, life. Things that will challenge what, what we know reality to be. When the community of faith gathers to witness to what they know to be true, because the Holy Spirit has revealed it, has shown it to be true, because each of us has ex- have experienced that thing in our life, when we say, yeah, we're here again to, to witness to that, to sing about that, to, to say yes to Scripture about that, to respond to the claim that that makes on our lives, in that kind of community, kids can grow up and know the safety that it is to follow Jesus. It's hard in our culture. It'll be probably be more difficult in theirs. So that's the foundation that we stand on by being a community of faith and inviting our little ones into it. I need that context as I share truth and in story and in scripture with kids. I need them to then be able to see that made real in your lives, in the lives of our parents, grandparents, friends. That that's why worship's important to me. Let me pause. Um, what's brewing? Are there, questions, are there questions that that's burning? Is there a, a thought around worship or about being ambassadors, about being sent? What's what's doing? Not all at once, please. I got plenty of questions for David, but yours are better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, if this isn't helpful, then, you know, leave it. I mean, this is a take or leave it. Sometimes I just think, I think visually, and so, um, um, so that, that's what this is about. But around this stuff, a lot of times when we talk about growth uh, of any kind, we, we think about, well, okay, we make resolutions, right? We, we know, we make decisions. Clearly that's, that's part of the thing. We come up with new input. Um, it's a new, uh, it's a new program. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a, a new study Bible. This one has notes for females under 30. It's pink. You know, this Bible's gonna actually help me grow, right? But you feel, but sometimes what, what happens is that we feel like we don't, uh, nothing's really happening. And what happens is th- these, there's nothing wrong with these. We need to make good decisions and we need to ask questions about what is the best kind of worship that we can, knowing that we can't get it perfect and there's no formula. But what, what's the best worship that we can do? Okay, we need to have a grid, but we don't, we don't know, we can't make those decisions until we get into the why. So here's what happens sometimes is that, um, I'll bump into people and people, sometimes people, they'll go from church to church to church and I, actually I'm, this isn't just young adults, but we're not, we're no different from it. And here's, you gotta hear me. I don't really care if you switch churches. And yet, I'm thinking of this, uh, of an older gal right now. Um, so, she can decide to go to church. She can find the very best church that she likes. She can keep changing worship styles. And yet, she can keep saying, you know what? None of the, this church isn't a welcoming church. This church doesn't actually help me grow. This church doesn't teach the Bible. 
when you kind of look back and you start to go, all right, well, you know, good, you did all these things, but if you're on your sixth church that isn't welcoming, it doesn't help you grow, maybe the issue is that you're non-verbally communicating that you hate everybody. And there are these moments at sometimes where we, we want to find the right formula, and yet what, what God is, is trying to do is He's trying to hit this why because He wants to get into here because you're afraid of being honest. Because what you believe is that you're fundamentally not really worth anything because somehow you pick that up. And that if you admit that, that if you admit what you really think, and what you really think is that you picked up some message that you're not beautiful, that you're not smart, that you're not worthwhile, that you have to perform. You could put all the Christianese on top of that you want, but you're going to continue to drive yourself into the ground. So I, I'm trying, I, that's, that is a little vague, but for some of us, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, is this an issue about a will or new information or new knowledge, or is this an issue of the fact that I need to maybe deal with some sin in my life, or, or that I don't, you know, um, I fundamentally don't think I'm secure. I fundamentally don't think that I, I really, I don't really, I want to be able to be the master of my own destiny, and I'm going to do it with. I don't need God's word, so I'm going to keep coming in each and every Sunday, and I'm going to dress up nice, and I'm going to look good, but there's not going. I'm not going. Everyone's going to look at me and go, "Well, he's a nice person," but. I don't really see anything of the character of God in him. Well, it's because you're just doing more stuff, and yet there might be something, a, a place of vulnerability that God is, is calling you to. So that, uh, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, you touched on fear. You didn't touch on the X factor. Where's the X factor? Well, the X factor is always outside of our control, but the X factor has to do with what, how am I going to um, put myself in a vulnerability um, so that this is not about me, but it's about them. Now, I, I can't control what God does, but I can come in a place, for instance, I would say things that we could quote-unquote do are to come in a place of humility, come into a place of vulnerability. Um, here's an example with my, with my wife. Here's how, the, here's how this engages with the X factor. Okay, wives tend to like um, flowers, okay? My wife likes flowers. And yet, um, if this, is, this actually happens... If we get in an argument, if we get in a, in a discussion, and she is having a really hard time, um, if I, I can come and I can go, okay, I'm not totally stupid, so I'm going to go buy her flowers, and I'm going I'm I'm to bring them home that night. If she thinks that what I'm doing is I'm just doing this out of a sense of uh, her need, she, it doesn't draw us closer together. It doesn't connect us. She kind of goes, yeah, you have to do that because uh, you know, I, I felt bad or I got mad at you or whatever. So just look, it looks like what I'm doing is my motivation is really about me instead of flowers that come out of a, totally out of surprise. I didn't have to do it. I wasn't trying to make up. I wasn't trying to, um, wasn't trying to get back in, in, in kind of a good relationship with her, but I just was thinking about her and I just thought she was amazing. I don't need anything. I'm not trying to get anything. I just think she's amazing. That's going to draw us into this place where, um, we're going to connect. We're going to feel closer. Uh, together, and it's going to be outside of my control in a sense. So it has to do a little bit, that motivation is that sense of, um, it's a, more of a humility and a vulnerability versus what can I, what can I do to get something for me? A little confused. Okay. We need to wrap up. Why don't you come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll go out wherever we're going out tonight. I'll go out afterwards. And if you guys want to ask questions, third place pub. Yeah.
I'd be happy to talk more about this because it, it, that's, to- that's totally fine if it's, um, I might need to explain it a little bit more. And these are, these are the good questions. So, Kyle. In, I think the X factor when John talks about motivation is the. Brent, I don't know if you can bring up Second Corinthians five, the passage John read. Um, there's a line in there, a passage that Paul says. Um, One back. The old, the old is gone, and the new has come. Once that that love of Christ has been revealed to you, you are new. When when you when you experience that and you say, "Wow," because I've experienced that, my life will never be the same. When you acknowledge that and you know, "Oh, this," that's what they're talking about. That's the new. Yet we go out the next day and we have a choice. We will either violate that new identity. Or that old identity. If we violate that old identity, we will live in and we will trust the love of God to to define us. If we violate that new identity, we will go back to the old and try and build that identity ourselves. That's that's the, the X factor, is that motivation. So when we come into worship, worship is the place that we walk in Weary, bloody, bruised, battered, and we're reminded of that love that establishes our new identity, and we're marked by it. Uh, the The movements in worship, you gather because God invited us into that because it was good. You 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 acknowledge who you are. You say, "This is who I am, God," and you have you have shown me your love, and I trust that that is changing my life transforming you hear the word you hear more truth in your life and you trust that it's a truth that in in our world we we are in our culture we take that power to discern what's truth the bible is a revealed truth that we rest on the the sacraments seal that they mark us that's the theological term we're marked by it we walk around with a mark and then we're sent into the world both intentionally and unintentionally, we bear that mark. Unintentionally because God's working on us. If we follow Christ in our life, we will be a different person next week, and we will be a different person in three years, five years, 50 years. Because we are, we are growing into that markedness by the love of Jesus. So that's the unintentional. But then we're also given instruction of how to live. And we, and we submit ourselves to that instruction. And that, in turn, is a way of life. It's practices. The Bible is pretty, you know, someone asked me, what's the will of God? Well, the will of God is pretty clear. No one comes up to me and says, I feel like killing my neighbor. Should I do that? <laughs> well, no, you shouldn't. The Bible's clear. The laws are clear. You know, no one comes up and says, I'm really wanting to 
cheat on my wife and can you, can you help me? No. No, but people will say, what's the will of God? Well, we have the word which informs pretty overtly those kind of, the, the goofy example. But we also live in the, the gathering that redefines who we are. The will of God is simply reading scripture, gathering to be reminded and renewed of that identity of beloved, and honestly doing what naturally honors the Lord. And when we do that, as we're sent intentionally, the world is brought near God as God is coming near the world. And that is, that is what is it is about. It's not about getting the job, getting the guy or the girl, getting the lifestyle. It is about the world coming near God as God has come near the world. And if there's any other identity that we're seeking after, then, then we are not taking the identity as Christian. So worship renews that identity. It reminds us of that identity. It seals that identity, and it says, go on out there and help others know the love, the power of Jesus' love, because it will change their lives. So. To be continued, keep talking about it. I'll, um, maybe that sounds like, like a little bit of a dodge, but I'm more than happy to talk about it. We haven't covered worship, and I just would say that part of what this means is is asking really good questions. And I have grown in the midst of this because I have actually wrestled with Kyle and with David around these questions. And we've sometimes we've realized that we've said that we're saying the exact same thing, but it took a while to get there. But but it only is going to come as we wrestle with this stuff. Then we're going to begin to unearth where's the real life in the midst of this. Uh, it's going to take your engagement and your um, being willing to, to just... To say this is this is what I think. This is what I see. Is it right? Is this what you're saying? It's going to take um, your engagement. It does not come uh, automatically. Um, we need we need to wrap things up. So I want would you just would you take us to the table and and um, the the table? We haven't talked about the table specifically because so much. Um, I know Danny talked about a little bit last week, but the table is central to everything because what is central to worship and what's central to our life is that coming into that trusted relationship with God. Um, and the table uh, goes throughout all of these things. We gather around the table. We're sent from the table.